This is episode 119 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Andromeda Strain, a Literary Virus. This episode is part of our Dear Daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. We did an episode last week about creative work that was done during quarantine, and I thought it would be interesting today to take a look at how epidemics or the flu are represented in literature. And I was thinking there is something about this time which has kind of a surreal and and literary feel to it. Not that it's a happy time. I, speaking for myself, I just feel as though I'm suffering from a kind of general malaise, like I'm watching a disaster in slow motion and feeling like I'm not handling it very well, but also being convinced that the authorities definitely aren't handling it very well either. So a very, very strange time for sure. And I thought we'd start with Andromeda Strain, which is such an awesome title. And Michael Crichton himself said that he came up with that title long before there was a book, and he knew that it was a really outstanding title. Uh, Definitely some spoilers likely to be in this episode. Uh, So if you've been saving Andromeda Strain for a special time, run off now and read it, and then uh, listen to this episode later. It's an interesting book. It came out in 1969, and we'll talk a little bit more about Michael Crichton, but it was the first book that was published under his name. And it wasn't really science fiction. Wikipedia calls it techno-fiction, and we'll talk about Bob Gottlieb also later, who was the editor for that book. And he kind of describes it as being a very particular kind of genre that really Michael Crichton became the representation of. There's a review in the Harvard Crimson, which in fact is where Crichton went to school, that said that it can't really be called a science fiction because the science in it is is very well known. Anyway, so the book is kind of a fun read, obviously, uh, very dramatic and extreme. It starts out by discovering that there is a city in Arizona where everyone is dead, Everyone except two people are dead, and it eventually is disclosed that there was a military satellite that went up into the outer reaches of the atmosphere, picked up some alien bug, and fell back down to Earth and killed everybody in this town except for two people. And these two people are just completely bizarre, right? This is fiction at its best. So one of them is this sterno-addicted a crazy person, and the other one is a baby. And it turns out that this organism can't kill somebody if their uh, blood is not conducive to, uh, to the virus. And so if it's too uh, acid or too alkaloid, then the virus doesn't kill them. And so this uh, crazy person, the sterno-addicted guy, uh, his blood 
It's got a very strange pH because it consumes sterno. And apparently the baby also has a strange pH because it cries all the time and is hyperventilating. Okay, so this a bunch of scientists come around, grab this thing, and take it off to guess where? Of course, Nevada, uh, where they have a secret underground laboratory. And then uh, the way this thing is set up is it's set, set up to self-destruct to get rid of the virus. At the last minute, they're rushing around at the climax, trying to figure out how to turn off this auto-destruct mechanism, which is going to create some, you know, holocaustic uh, nuclear disaster. Anyway, I'll let you uh, read it and find out whether or not they were successful. And of course, there's an epilogue uh, that contains one of those and the mystery continues type endings. So all, all, all a lot of fun. I'm going to read an excerpt for you here. This is from the very beginning. Chapter one, the country of lost borders. A man with binoculars, that is how it began, with a man standing by the side of the road on a crest overlooking a small Arizona town on a winter night. Lieutenant Roger Sean must have found the binoculars difficult. The metal would be cold, and he would be clumsy in his fur parka and heavy gloves. His breath, hissing out into the moonlit air, would have fogged the lenses. He would be forced to pause to wipe them frequently using a stubby, gloved finger. He could not have known the futility of this action. Binoculars were worthless to see into that town and uncover its secrets. He would have been astonished to learn that the men who finally succeeded used instruments a million times more powerful than binoculars. There is something sad, foolish, and human in the image of Sean leaning against a boulder, propping his arms on it and holding the binoculars to his eyes. Though cumbersome, then binoculars would at least feel comfortable and familiar in his hands. It would be one of the last familiar sensations before his death. We can imagine and try to reconstruct what happened from that point on. Lieutenant Sean swept over the town slowly and methodically. He could see it was not large, just a half dozen wooden buildings set out along a single main street. It was very quiet, no lights, no activity, no sound carried by the gentle wind. He shifted his attention from the town to the surrounding hills. They were low, dusty, and blunted, with scrubby vegetation and an occasional withered yucca tree crusted in snow. Beyond the hills were more hills, and then the flat expanse of the Mojave Desert, trackless and vast. The Indians called it the country of lost borders. Lieutenant Sean found himself shivering in the wind, it was February, the coldest month, and it was after 10. He walked back up the road toward the Ford Ecovan with the large rotating antenna on top. The motor was idling softly. It was the only sound he could hear. He opened the rear doors and climbed into the back, shutting the doors behind him. Crichton then goes on uh, to describe the interior of this fan and the equipment that's used to track the uh, satellite that has fallen back to Earth. And they've been using triangulation, so there's a long description of how that works. And that they've uh, tracked the satellite to this town, and now it appears to be in the center of the town, which they're confused about a little bit, like why? How could it have gotten from where it was into the town? Maybe somebody carried it in there. Uh, might have been retrieved, bringing it into Piedmont. 
This was reasonable, except that a native of Piedmont who happened upon an American satellite fresh from space would have told someone. Reporters, police, NASA, the Army, someone. But they had heard nothing. Sean climbed back down from the van with Crane scrambling after him, shivering as the cold air struck him. Together, the two men looked over the town. It was peaceful, but completely dark. Sean noticed that the gas station and the motel both had their lights doused, yet they represented the only gas station and motel for miles. And then Sean noticed the birds. In the light of the full moon, he could see them, big birds gliding in slow circles over the buildings, passing like black shadows across the face of the moon. He wondered why he hadn't noticed them before and asked Crane what he made of them. Crane said he didn't make anything of them. As a joke, he added, Maybe they're buzzards. That's what they look like, all right, Sean said. Crane laughed nervously, his breath hissing out into the night. But why should there be buzzards here? They only come when something is dead. Sean lit the cigarette, cupping his hands around the lighter, protecting the flame from the wind. He said nothing, but looked down at the buildings, the outline of the little town. Then he scanned the town once more with binoculars, but saw no signs of life or movement. At length, he lowered the binoculars and dropped his cigarette onto the crisp snow, where it sputtered and died. He turned to Crane and said, We'd better go down and have a look. Michael Crichton is an interesting writer, and one way you can remember how to pronounce his last name is that it rhymes with frighten. And he uh, was born in Chicago and had always intended to be a writer, started writing at a young age and even had an article published in the New York Times when he was only 14. He started in Harvard to major in English. That was his intention. But he encountered a professor who kept giving him really low marks. And so Crichton was suspicious that this professor was biased against him. So he set up to trick him and talked to another professor and then submitted an essay by George Orwell under his own name. We'll learn that he got into a habit of writing things under other people's names. Anyway, so he submitted this paper uh, that was actually a, a plagiarizing George Orwell, and the professor gave it a mark of B-. Crichton said that he was so incensed by that that he thought he better jo- drop English as his major. So he actually switched from English and went into biological anthropology, which of course would eventually serve him very well. He graduated and was initiated into the Phi Beta Kappa Society and eventually enrolled in medical school. And he said two weeks into medical school, he realized he hated it. Quoting him, he said, this isn't unusual since everybody hates medical school, even happy practicing physicians. So he started writing under a pen name while he was at medical school, and he wrote a series of novels under the pen name of John Lang, really just to make money. They were relatively successful, And he had three of those written, three of the John Lang novels. His fourth novel was written also under a pen name, this time Jeffrey Hudson. And this is the first one in which he really drew upon his knowledge about uh, medicine and science. And he won an Edgar Award for this, actually, in 1969. At that point, after he'd finished his third year of medical school, he said, Uh, that he realized that what he really loved was writing. 
He continued to write more John Lang novels and eventually decided to write Andromeda Strain under his own name. And that was obviously very much a turning point for him. It was a bestseller and established him as a notable writer. Although he became more disenchanted with medical school, he did uh, eventually graduate from Harvard, getting an MD in 1969, and actually then took up a postdoc position at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies here in La Jolla. Who knew? And that was from 1969 to 1970. In fact, if I recall correctly, one of his books, I think it was Prey, was actually set partly in La Jolla and talks quite a bit about the biotech community here and also talks about nanotechnology, which was interesting, another fun, creepy read. Anyway, he never got a license to practice medicine but uh, turned to writing. And here I want to talk about Bob Gottlieb, who was uh, Crichton's editor at Knopf. We'll hear about the editing process first from Crichton himself. And so he explains here on his website that he had this title, which he really liked, but he didn't have a book. And eventually the idea of this outer space virus or organism from the upper atmosphere came to him because somebody had pointed out that no science fiction writers had ever addressed that. And so he thought, okay, I'll do that. He says, eventually I finished a whole draft and sent it to my new editor, Bob Gottlieb at Knopf. Bob said he would not even consider publishing it unless I was willing to completely rewrite it from beginning to end. I was 25 at the time, and Bob was only in his early 30s, but he had a very large reputation as an editor because he had edited Catch-22. So I gulped and said I would rewrite it according to his directions. And then there's uh, some technical stuff about the Uh, writing style that Bob was encouraging him to use. And eventually, Crichton says, and I began to imitate that factual nonfiction writing style. It yielded a very cold, detached book that was also weirdly convincing. After I sent Bob Gottlieb the rewritten manuscript, he called up and said I had done very good work, and therefore I only had to write half of it all over again. I gulped and said I would. After that, he would just call me every few days, rewrite the beginning of this chapter, redo this description, this character isn't right, fix it, add a chapter here, and on and on. I began to feel persecuted by these demands, which seemed interminable and increasingly nitpicking. And then he says in parentheses, I did not yet know how rare good editing is. When the book was published, lots of people thought it was true. It was pretty interesting. And then he talks a little bit here about uh, the making of the movie, uh, how they went and found all the things that the book talked about, the underground laboratory, the computer programs, the biometric security. After a while, I stopped telling people that I had made it all up because it turned out that it was based on true things, but I didn't know that when I was writing the book. And from his side, Bob Gottlieb's side, He described this process in his book, Avid Reader, which I highly recommend if you're interested in the editing process. And he says that Michael Crichton came to him as a completely unknown author when he was still fairly new at Knopf. And he said Crichton was uh, very good, actually, at writing about science. And he said, quote, you got a lesson while you were being scared. And then he writes, what Michael wasn't was a very good writer. The Andromeda strain was a terrific concept, but it was a mess, sloppily plotted, underwritten, and worst of all, with no characterization whatsoever. His scientists were beyond generic. 
They lacked all human specificity. The only thing that distinguished some of them from the others was that some died and some didn't. I realized right away that with his quick mind, swift embrace of editorial input, and extraordinary work habits, he could patch the plot, sharpen the suspense, clarify the science, in fact, do everything necessary except create convincing human beings. He never did manage to. Eventually, I concluded that he couldn't write about people because they just didn't interest him. It occurred to me that instead of trying to help him strengthen the human element— we could make a virtue of necessity by stripping it away entirely, by turning the Andromeda strain from a documentary novel into a fictionalized documentary. Michael was all for it. I think he felt relieved. And then he goes on to describe this process as Crichton did about back and forth ping pong, editorial ping pong, he calls it. He does say that mostly he left all the science alone, but one thing that he is most proud of in his participation of editing The Andromeda Strain was a single contribution to the actual workings of the plot. And he uh, says this, Michael would years later recall it this way in the Paris Review at the climax of the action. He said, I had it so that one of the characters was supposed to turn on a nuclear device and there was suspense about whether or not that would happen. Bob said, no, no, the switch has to turn itself on automatically and the character has to turn it off. He was absolutely right. And Bob says it proves that even when you're out of your depth, you can get lucky. Uh, then goes on to talk about working on a few more novels with uh, Crichton, but he said that that he didn't his writing really didn't improve very much. And as Gottlieb left to go to the New Yorker, then Crichton got assigned to somebody else. Gottlieb says that it was a relief. I was increasingly uneasy editing books I didn't think were very good. And although our personal interactions remained cordial, I found him, all six feet nine inches of him, very uncomfortable within his skin, and particularly ill at ease with me as a somewhat older man who was a kind of authority figure. A couple more odd things about Andromeda Strain. Uh, before I let you go, and one of them is this thing called odd man hypothesis. This was a fictional hypothesis that maintained that unmarried men are the best able to execute the most dispassionate decisions in a crisis. So in this case, the disabling of the automatic self-destruction of the nuclear uh, weapon. In the novel, there's a particular scientist who's picked out, Dr. Hall, and he's picked out and briefed on this hypothesis and is given the keys in order to disable the mechanism. And there's some discussion about whether or not this is just a, a made-up hypothesis in order to get the keys into the hands of a private individual and out of the hands of uh, government people. Another strange thing that caught my eye about this is that uh, one of the scientists, uh, Dr. Stone, in the book, he's a professor and chair of the bacteriology department at Stanford University, and also in the book is the winner of the 1961 Nobel Prize. Well, apparently this caught the eye of some friends of a uh, scientist Joshua Letterberg, who was also a Nobel laureate and who was also in the uh, bacteriology department at Stanford. And he got upset to discover that uh, there was this likeness in the book. 
And so he wrote to the president of Knopf to complain. And I managed to find a copy of two letters that he wrote with doing enough digging around in the internet. It's amazing what you can find. And so he wrote, It has just reached my attention that one of the characters in the Andromeda strain has certain biographic resemblances to me and might plausibly be believed to refer to me. At the same time, the novel exhibits some personal history that bears no such correspondence to facts and casts the character in uncomplimentary light. So here it's kind of a funny thing. It's like, not enough like me or too much like me, um, but also this character is not presented well. Kind of funny. Okay, so he writes to ask for uh, their cooperation to minimize the personal injury following the publication, and he wants them to not advertise it as being true, but more emphasize that it's fiction. He says, I do not wish at this time to call further attention to the matter by any specific statements about it. Um, And then he goes on to say, now he's even more worried because he knows there's going to be a movie that's made. Eventually, a movie was made, which was directed by Robert Wise. And he also wrote to Robert Wise about it and was asking that everybody handle this in a responsible fashion. Interestingly, he closes by saying, the book is an interesting one and deserves to have a wide sale, but I do not think it would detract from its appeal if it were properly fictionalized. I would assume that you will reassure me that the possibility of a personal identification through such details as the academic position of the character, exclamation point, had simply escaped your notice. So it's really those two things together, the identification of Stanford and also the fact that he's a Nobel laureate. He wrote again later that month in June of 1969, and uh, this letter begins with expressing his appreciation for a letter that he received from the president of Knopf. And then he goes on to say, none of my friends or acquaintances has any doubt whatever about the identification of the character in the Andromeda strain. And I find it hard to believe that the parallel is entirely fortuitous. <laughs> this is kind of funny to me. It's like I can imagine his friends sitting around saying, hey, dude, this could totally be you. And he takes them uh, seriously. However, I do not suggest that it is malicious. And as far as I can tell, no harm has come of it. And so long as this remains the case, I would be happy to let the matter rest right here. I should point out, if I haven't said this before, that a Joshua Letterberg, uh, although uh, probably very famous in his time, no, not a household word. So I can't imagine that there would have been much trouble that came from this. But he goes on. He says, It would, however, be prudent to follow your suggestion that Stanford be regarded as a misprint for a fictional location and that this be corrected accordingly in future editions. It is interesting to think about this in light of Gottlieb's talking about trying to make the characters as true as possible, since that wasn't a forte of Crichton's. Uh, Gottlieb, for his part, doesn't say anything about Joshua Letterberg in his book. So there you have it, some Andromeda strain stuff and a quick dive into a literary virus. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis, 
early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-E, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.